Venivores, a podcast about hunting for people who don't hunt, or haven't hunted, or haven't hunted much, want to learn, or want to learn. Feel that tingling in the back of my neck. You have to be there. You have to be there. You, you don't know it at the time, yeah. you know, but it sticks with you all your life. And you you don't experience those things unless you are a hunter. Uh, a guy was walking through the woods, hiking, hunting, doesn't matter what he was doing. And he was deep, deep, deep in the backcountry. And he came across the most beautiful lake in the middle of a clearing that he had ever seen in his life. And he stopped and he put his pack down and he leaned against a tree. And he thought, this place is pretty nice. I'm going to remember where this is. And he took a little rest for a little while and then he moved on on his hike. Next season he was back, decided he wanted to hunt there. Came back, found the same lake, took a spot next to a different tree. Said, this is really beautiful. I wonder if there's any fish in this lake. I should have brought my fishing pole. Next season, comes back, finds what he's now thinking of as his secret lake. Brings his fishing pole. Lo and behold, the thing's full of whatever kind of fish, you name it. And he thinks, damn, that's great. I bet my buddy Miller would love it out here. So... The next season they come back and they do some fishing, only this time they just make a fishing trip out of it and they think it's awesome. And that happens a few seasons and the man gets to thinking that that would be a nice place to have a little hideaway. So he decides he's going to build himself a little cabin out there and he does. And Miller thinks that that is a pretty good idea, so he builds one too. Now... They have their little getaways where they go hunting and fishing, and it's beautiful, and they keep it secret to themselves. And they live out their lives, and they buy some land around the area, and they have their own little secret spot. And their kids inherit it. And their kids think, boy, this is gorgeous, and you know what would be fun? Get a little boat out here, throw a dock in the water, make this little something a little bit nicer than old grandpa had out here. And we should have some friends. And they bring some friends out, and they throw a boat in the water, and they throw some docks in. And another family builds a cabin on the other side of the lake. And they bring their friends up, and their family up. And they think it's pretty nice, and it stays there with the family, and it's nice and secluded. And a couple generations down the road, now there's several families that brought their, brought their friends out there. They've all built cabins. They sell the land to each other. And I think you can see where this is going. Eventually, there's cabins all around the lake. Everybody's got a uh, beautiful planted lawn. There's speedboats zipping all over the place and it's full of zebra mussels and aquatic milfoil. That is how you take a pristine secret hidden away lake and turn it into a vacation spot.
I'm Tony Martinson. This is the new Venivores. This is a podcast about hunting for people who don't hunt and are interested in hunting or learning more about outdoorsmanship where we take my experiences as a new and beginning hunter and throw them up against my friend's lifelong experience in hunting and fishing and uh, try and discuss some of the issues, topics, some of my findings and sort of make it easier for people to access hunting, fishing, and traditional outdoorsmanship from a place of not a lot of knowledge about it. So like I said, I'm Tony Martinson. I was uh, clumsily relaying a story that my friend, Adam Miller, uh, once wrote as a response, either a blog post or a response to somebody on social media comment, and I thought it was brilliant. And it outlined uh, something that we kind of take for granted, at least where I'm from, and where I grew up too. So uh, I thought that was brilliant about how if you're not careful, things can get out of hand and you can turn uh, what used to be a wild place into, well, Yellowstone. <laughs> we'll say Yellowstone <laughs> because that is kind of what happened there, right? We could easily tell that story as I forget the name of the guy who first discovered Yellowstone, if it even is recorded, um, but I'm sure it is. But mountain man riding across the prairie comes across this hellfire place that is unbelievable. Comes back telling stories. Next thing you know, you got people getting mauled, taking selfies with bison out there. Right? Less than, <laughs> well, a little over 100 years ago, but, you know, 150 years ago. So uh, it's something I actually kind of took for granted as a kid growing up doing the hunting and fishing and outdoor stuff that I did is that that is the way it is. Right. And, uh, as I'm coming back as an adult, it's something I consider a little bit more because everybody wants a place to get away, but we got to be careful about the places we get away because then they're not getaway places, especially when it comes to wild places. Right. That is true. Um, you put that story, uh, a lot more delicately than I did. Yeah, you were a little up front with it. When I, <laughs> I could I could hear the anger in your voice when you were telling the story in print. There was, you know, it was, a, it was on a uh, article about pollution in Minnesota waters. Right, in my wheelhouse. There's essentially there's almost no waters left in Minnesota that aren't polluted in yeah. some way. Yeah, and it's a it's a painful thing to, to it takes a lot of a mystery out of things. I guess is probably a good way to put it. A lot of the romance out when you realize that there probably isn't a square inch of land in the entire world over that hasn't had that is not impacted by man in some way. Oh yeah, like, yeah. I mean, it didn't, there might not. I mean, there might still be some little pieces or pockets here and there that have never actually had man step foot on it, but it's been impacted by some in some way. Oh, for sure. Even that. What's that? The taiga forest up there in Russia. Yeah. I mean, super like one of the most sparsely populated places on Earth, but like climate change. If you believe it's a real thing. Uh. <laughs> That was a joke. You're not laughing. Mm -hmm. um, if you believe it's a real thing. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. 
is I mean, it affects like climate affects right. Man has an effect on everything, whether it be pollution or otherwise, right? Right. So well, even if even if you don't, let's just take climate change out of the out of it. Let's I mean, just I mean, if the, those animals have never seen man before, they've seen a plane fly overhead. Right. You know. Yeah. I mean, and I can you can argue about the impact of that, but it it. Is there? It's. I mean, there's still places that are very wild. Um, you know, even even capital W wilderness. But yeah, you know, it's just it, it. It's a. I mean, maybe this is just me. You know, being kind of a sap about it. But that's to me, it's a sad thing that there's there's essentially nothing left that's kind of unknown to us. I guess on the terrestrial yeah. part like yeah there's definitely some pockets of the ocean that we don't know about but oh they're... like depending on who you talk to majority we don't know about it and to me that's real life monsters and aliens is underneath the water <laughs> like that's for real mm-hmm. how if you just so it's kind of um yeah i guess you know i don't know it's it's in it you know it's where do you strike that balance you know, yeah. as we've, this podcast is all about recruitment of people to the outdoors, specifically hunters and fishermen. But if we're recruiting just people that just like to enjoy it for the sake of enjoying it and want to conserve and protect those areas that we like to hunt, you know, just because they enjoy them other ways, I'm plenty okay with that. Right. I'm, I'm more than okay with that. I support it. For sure. You know, but it's a, it's a tough thing to, to realize or to I don't know, except I guess that the more you draw people into the outdoors, the less it becomes the outdoors. Yeah. So, and I think that's where that attitude that we have discussed before, um, among sort of the, a specific, I don't want to call it class, but a specific subgroup of hunters that are, uh, well, I would call them like old boys a lot and that are, you know, secretive about their spots. They're, uh, keep the barrier to entry on the activity, like a little bit high, maybe a little bit intentionally because there's kind of a famine mentality out there when it comes to, you know, fishing spots and hunting spots and where to go and what to do and all that stuff. Like, I mean, it's not, I guess I don't know if I I've been fortunate enough to build decent relationships and things like that with people and like just the way I grew up I know people that go hunting and things like that so as I get back into this as an adult I have been fortunate enough to find people to you know show me the ropes and that's getting better and that's what we're trying to support especially with state level new hunter programs and that sort of thing but mm-hmm. it's sort of a well, it's definitely a huge put off if you walk up to a person and go, Oh yeah, you were hunting, where'd you go? How'd you do that? <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Like that's bad form. Like where did you go hunting is very bad form, you know what I mean? And it's I mean, as far as I can tell. And it's I think that's where I sort of that comes from, is because the more people you introduce to it, the less it is what it is. You know, and people aren't shy about asking about it anymore either. No. And part of it is people aren't shy about telling as much, you know, well, it's, you can't just 
I mean, you can't just uh, do something now. You have to put it on Facebook. Oh, you can't yeah. just take a picture now. You have to put it on Instagram, you know? So uh, that it goes back to for the enjoyment of the people, right? What does that mean? So we have right. national parks, right? Yep, tourists go hiking. There's some capital W wild spots there, right? But we have your Yosemite's where you get a bunch of dirt bags climbing El Cap. Like that damn mm -hmm. fool Alex Honnold with no goddamn ropes or any of that shit. Gonna fall off the mountain and die, you crazy son of a bitch. <laughs> um, but... Dude, you should see him at Devil's Tower. Yeah? Oh, no, I have, yeah. I'm actually gonna... Uh, it's one of my, like, three-year-out goals is to climb Devil's Tower myself, actually. Um, my cousin did it years ago. Uh, you know... There's some there's some so, okay. decent so, pitches. Yeah, there's like a five eight five ten pitch. So Dell's Tower is it's extreme and, and it's this this crazy column out. If you've never seen it, Google a picture. Well, what it is is it was an old volcano that mm -hmm. uh, the rock inside solidified and then the mountain eroded away around the column of rock in the middle of that volcano. It's literally a giant volcanic pillar just sticking up out of the ground. It's awesome. Right. And it, it comes out of nowhere. So it's awesome. It's, it's an amazing geological feature. Yep. And you can and climb. And then if you're a biologist that's happened to done work down there, you know that even at the top of this tower, which seems to like travel, you know, it seems to go a mile up into the sky. It's, it's a day climb. Easy. You know that there's a base of species on the top of that, like specifically <laughs> yep. Spurge. Yep. <laughs> you know, and, and is, is that not sad? Again. I mean, is that not... Yes, it is. Yeah. Know, like, that's really sad. It's like... But it's for the enjoyment of the people, just, right? One of the yeah, things, I mean... It, sorry, sorry. I keep interrupting you. But one of the things that struck me about that is like... When I saw it, I was like, oh, shit, that'd be so cool to climb. Um, just because that's the kind of person I am. And then there's, a, there's like a one-mile loop around the base of it. And I guess maybe that makes me part of the problem now that I say that out loud. But uh, mm -hmm. there's a one-mile loop around the base of it, nice paved path. And on part of that one-mile loop, you can look through uh, some, like, fixed telescopes that point directly at the remnants of the very first staircase that somebody built up to the top of the thing. So in the heroic age, whatever, 18 doot-to-do, whoever came across that, uh, they said, yep, I'm going to climb it too. And like literally built a stairway. Every step he built was the highest he'd ever built a stairway, <laughs> the highest anyone had ever been on that thing. And like built his way up to the top of the dang devil's tower. And part of it's still bolted to the side of the thing right now, which is cool. But also where's the line, right? Yeah. It's it's tough, you know, to know that our species we can't look at something, and it doesn't matter whether it is whether it's another species, a piece of land, or whatever, without thinking how do we conquer this, you know, how do we possess this? Yeah, yeah. <sighs> but again, also though, like that's why we're talking over the internet right now, right? Like that's yeah, the attitude pointing in the right direction. But I don't mean to shit all over your point, but the reason that we're uh, I mean, clearly this comes back to 
you know, hunting and fishing, right? So there's all sorts of different public mm -hmm. land. You can't hunt in national parks, right? No. Um, Not, as a general rule, though, there may be some exceptions. Yeah. And then there is, at times, um, very, very controlled hunts, in quotation marks, that take place in some of these national parks to... Like, for instance, uh, again, the south unit of the park here had to have elk thinned out because they were just overpopulated and doing damage to the park because it has no natural predators that can take elk. So, yeah, yeah. So there is occasional hunts, Yeah. but they're, they're more shoots than anything. So. <laughs> well, but then, so you get in these other types of public land, right? Uh, forest mm -hmm. service land, BLM land. National monuments, right? Yep. Which is not a national park, state land, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, so they all have different levels of uh, usage and consumption, right? Which, right. which I mean, there's sustainable forestry practices that go on on Forest Service land, and that's where you get into the political side of things, right? Uh, I think you can graze on BLM land if you pay your rents and stuff like that, right? Well, so, for, like, yeah, so, like I said, each one has their own edict to um, how they're managed. Like, most of U.S. Forest Service land yeah. is managed with at least for multiple use, but with respect to um, the natural presence. Yeah. Okay. While while BLM, Bureau of Land which is Management, Bureau of Land Management, which is okay. the largest land manager of the federally owned or you know publicly owned land, it's true multiple use. Okay. So on Bureau of Land Management, you know you can see um, full fledged mining. You know. Yeah. Um, you can see um, a number of things that are very consumptive you know they have to go through a process of through the national environmental policy act to basically assess the environmental impact they're going to have but they you know those lands were procured and they've always been managed in such a way that they are for true multiple use which is fine you know yeah. it's you know, we we generate a lot of um, income for a lot of people off those lands. We generate a lot of, you know, there's a lot of prosperity that comes off those lands for different jobs, you know, what have you. Yeah. Um, you know, and, mo and they all are going to have, um, you can impact the land, let's say it's a coal mine. Right. But you eventually need to put it back to what it was. Okay. You know. Or better, so it's not like it's just a destroy it and leave it type deal, but it, it can be a very very long process. Yeah, and again, that's where I think that we come up against a lot of the hot opinions about this stuff, right? Is when the rubber meets the road on mm -hmm. that, and it gets really to the heart of the question we're kind of talking about here, like where's the line, right? Mm -hmm. Because uh, up here in the most visited wilderness in America, the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness, uh, this the mm -hmm northern border of Minnesota that butts up against Canada, um, sort of, as you push inland from Lake Superior up there. It's, uh, I mean, it's extremely remote, and it's accessible only by non-motored 
boats and you it's connected by all sorts of a series of trails that uh, you call the portage. The only thing I know that's measured in rods, actually, where you carry all your stuff in between all these lakes and it's a fishing and canoeing paradise out there. But just outside of the Boundary Waters, uh, they are embroiled in a legal battle to get the easement for a, a copper nickel mine up there. And it is a hot political subject because of historical patterns of... Uh, spills, I guess, right? I don't know if I'm thinking in oil because that's what I know about from North Dakota. A lot of spills. A lot of spills. And then, so I had a friend at work, and I don't know if I mentioned this on the podcast before, but I've talked to you about it, but I had a friend at work that said, oh, you've been up to the Boundary Waters? Have you talked to your congressman about, or congress representative about uh, blocking this copper nickel mine? And I said, no, but, and he's like, was just uh, taken aback. And he said, why not? I was like, well, uh, don't know much about copper nickel mining. Uh, what's the history of spills? Uh, what's the history of that getting outside of the containment area? What's the history of the abatement that took place afterwards? Um, what's the track history on all this? Because coming from a place that does a lot of natural resource, uh, well, coming from a place that takes takes advantage of all the natural, a lot of natural resources, especially some of those that are not as uh, PC or deemed as acceptable as, let's say, wind or something like that, which we do take advantage of in North Dakota, but, I mean, it's oil. And there's more that, to that, right? So, mm-hmm. um, as Nothing I'm, is as simple as it seems with... No. No, none yeah. of that, with any of that stuff. But as, uh, in the fullness of time, turns out that this, as I've found, particular after talking to you, company has uh, not had the best track record with spills and containment and this type of mining in general and it's close enough to the water table of the boundary waters that something big and bad could really mess up the whole area for a long time so it is not in and this is not i i do not feel that this is hyperbole it would not be a matter of if it impacts the boundary waters it'd be a matter of how much it's going to okay well, and like, if there's without a doubt. Mm-hmm. Oh no! Go ahead. Without a doubt, there would be without a doubt. There would be without a doubt. You know, water like erosion type. You know, runoff impacts to the watershed. You know, then it would be unavoidable. Now, yeah. now that is to say, I mean, there's gravel roads that go right up to the edge of the boundary waters. Those also have erosion runoff impacts to the boundary waters. Right. You know, so when I so I don't want to, I'm not saying that, it, it, I'm not forgiving that. I'm not saying it'd be so detrimental that it would ruin it, but I mean we, I mean we, you have to look at it objectively and know that yes, there will be an impact. Yeah, it's you know, just isn't an impact, scale, right? Yeah, is it an impact that we're willing to live with? You know, yeah. and then they're going essentially this like same exact fight and pebble mine in Alaska. Been yeah. fighting this for 20 years, you know. What level of impact to, you know, the very like the last? I think it's like one of the last like true salmon, like on it like on impact and again in quotations, right. uh, salmon fisheries or salmon habitats anywhere. Yeah. So wow. let's build a mine there. <laughs> you know, so they've been, 
<laughs> yeah. You know, so it, I mean, and then they've been fighting this for 20 years, you know, and it's just, it, it's one of those things. It's like, again, we're, we're not, <laughs> well, there's other places to get these materials. They might not be as easy, right. but there's other places to get these materials. Why are we choosing why is it, you know, and, and why is it always this place? And what, it, what it, I think what it boils down to is it's easier to get to permitting on these types of places that they're essentially low human impact, not a lot of people there. And the right. mind doesn't impact a lot of people. It impacts, you know, nature. Yes. You know, so there's just, there's more Ooh. NIMBYs, which not in my backyard. Yes. NIMBYs, not yes. under my backyard. <laughs> and my personal favorite, bananas, build absolutely nothing anywhere near anything. <laughs> well, so, and, that's an interesting question, and, though. And like, that's it, not a workable solution either. There's 7 billion people on this planet, and we, we consume resources. Right. <laughs> so, Well, that's an interesting yeah. question, though. Like, if you wouldn't want it in your backyard why would mm-hmm. you want it in the salmon fishery? Why would you want yeah, so, it in the most visited wilderness area in America? I'm, yeah, so I'm throwing that okay out there. With having that. It, yeah, so you become okay with having it in somebody else, as long as I don't have to see it, you know, and somebody as long as it's yeah. somebody else's problem, I'm okay with it. Well, and I don't use those areas myself, so what? what's the use, right? Precisely. You um, know, so and they, I mean, this is not... I want to be very clear. This is not just, I mean, it's everybody. It's across the entire political spectrum. They've run into this on like offshore wind or offshore, oh, all yes. sorts of things. When If, if you look at a map in the United States, our coasts are dominated by um, liber, you know, Demo- Democrat people. They're, they're blue. Yes. You know, nothing more than centers. that. Population centers. And this isn't about that, but I'm, you know, I'm just saying that, like, you know, these offshore things that are dominated by rich Democrats that, you know, generally speaking, are more environmentally friendly are like, no, we can't build these wind towers off of my property out in the ocean. I'll have to see them. Goddamn John Deere and his Sierra Club, I'll tell you what. Right. So, you know. <laughs> I'm a huge John Muir fan. <laughs> well, so it becomes this. Everyone has a bleeding heart for something and you right. know and until it the rubber meets the road like you said like as soon as it becomes something i have to live with right you know then it's no longer okay just move it somewhere else so i don't have to see it well and the other thing is is you know and it just yeah sorry sorry go ahead we're running out of places where we can move it somewhere else so you don't have to see it you right know? and the places where we move it somewhere else so that the population centers don't have to see it are highly valuable places to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the flip side of that, I was out visiting some family a few years ago out uh, in Wyoming, and I was driving with one of my cousins, and we were kind of back up in the hills. And he's looking around, and he goes, you see all these hills out here? And I said, yeah. And he's like, that's all reclaimed mine land. And it, I mean, there was uh, antelope out there and all that stuff. I mean, like, it can be redone, right? But... Again, not not impacted. It can be reclaimed. It can be reused. It can get back mm-hmm. to what it was. But doing that in that way, I like your T-shirt, by the way. 
doing that in that way is a little different than uh, having a big uh, a toxic mine runoff or byproduct spill into the Boundary Waters watershed, right? Right. So, and then that's not to mention well, the conversation between the use of graze lands and all that stuff uh, that has gotten print and media attention in the last several years. Um, great podcast about that. It's called Bundyville. It's a mini series. <laughs> it's it actually breaks down a lot of that very in a very interesting way. So there's that too. If I, I really need to add about that particular well, those characters. Yeah. Um if I can understand if you you know how should I put this delicately? <laughs> Don't try and put it delicately. Say what you think. If you've only looked at the surface, I can understand how you can sympathize with them. But if you look at it at all, you realize what a son of a bitch he is. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, this is everyone's like unforgivable. Yeah. Shit. You well, know, this is public land, so we can all use it. Except for I'm going to use it for free, and I'm not going to abide to the agreement of the public land usage that we all agree mm -hmm. to to be able to use it yeah i don't feel that yeah despite all the laws in perlite place that i don't have to abide by them you know right and it's ridiculous that is yeah. i mean it every, people painted him as a patriot and it's horseshit he stole from us he stole from every <laughs> single one of us and that's the thing too that's uh one of the things that I'm actually pretty proud about in the public land management system is there are a lot of places where we don't come together and agree on stuff. And I'm not saying we agree on everything that comes to that, that falls under the uh, uh, umbrella of the American model of public land and conservation management. But one thing we all do is say, we come together and say, this is important enough to us to spend money on it, spend our time on it. And for the most part, take care of it together. Like the foot traffic that comes through our public land systems is millions a year. But yeah, every once in a while when the government shuts down, assholes cut down Joshua trees. But for the most part, that doesn't happen. And not because there's a ton of rangers around. Like I have not ran into, for the amount of time I've spent in public land areas, the number of rangers I ran into is fairly minimal. And it's because the people that choose to engage see the value and have a bit of a social contract a lot of the times, depending on where you are, to yeah. to preserve that together, right? The trail code of ethics and all that stuff. And I think specifically in the hunting and fishing community, I'm seeing more of it now. There's always been an old boy mentality, right? But I'm seeing it and I don't mean to pick on old guys. I just call it that. Um, but, you know, there's this mentality of what well, the DNR doesn't catch you doing. Uh, the it won't hurt them, right? But <laughs> um, I think there's a growing culture of hunters holding each other accountable for that as well and taking each other to task because that's the most important part of it is – it only works if we all do what we're supposed to do when it comes to uh, land and wildlife conservation and management. It only works if we do it together, right? Mm -hmm. 
So, and I mean, that's the that's the thing about all of it is. I mean, if you we've talked about it before, but if you look at Africa, right, you have endangered species, but they're slowly figuring out that if you monetize them and make them worth something, yes, it's you're taking out one or two or three out of a very small herd, but if you get hundreds of thousands of dollars for them, all of a sudden it's more economically viable and it incentivizes keeping them alive and, and fostering a healthy population rather than just saying you can't do that, right? Right. Um, which recently we've had some uh, changes to some of the bedrock principles and structures of our public land and wildlife management uh, system here in America. One of them is our new guy here, our BLM guy that we were talking about before this. What's that character's name? William Perry Penley, I think. Yeah. This is his full... I don't know why. Apparently he's a guy that gets to have three names that <laughs> people refer to him by. But William Penley. Honestly. Yeah. Advocated for the selling of public lands, and now he's in charge of your Bureau of Land Management? Yeah. By yours, I mean <laughs> America's. How does that happen, I guess? Yeah. Well. And, so, I mean, he's got a long, long history. Um, you know, and the, the sky isn't completely falling with that. Yeah. I mean, it's a temp. So, so a couple things here. No one likes to permanently work for Donald Trump. Um, <laughs> Not even my man, Mad Dog Mattis. Yeah, like he just—I mean—he just cycles through people. So since his inauguration, like that, essentially, it's been a revolving door door for that yeah. Yeah. position. Yeah. Um. So he's got—it's—it's a couple weeks ago and. Essentially, he's got a temporary position until September 30th. So essentially, it's a two-month term position. Yeah. So and then he might get renewed. He might not. Who knows? You know. But uh, I mean, with the Trump administration, there just hasn't been a lot of just continuity in no. the Department of Interior, um, which manages you know, a ton of land. Um, you know, Department of uh, Department of Agriculture more so, but I don't know specifically for the U.S. Forest Service, which is in the Department of Agriculture instead of the Department of the Interior. Yeah. Um, kind of a strange deal. I don't know why. Um, I mean, it's a long history of yes. forestry was egg, I guess, basically. Um, but, it, I mean, so without that continuity, it's really been tough for anybody to get any momentum. For, yeah. And we've kind of um, stalled out. You know, and that's kind of the same. It's the same thing, and it's essentially the same deal that's happening in Washington now. Is that right? We all hate each other so much that nothing. <laughs> well, and in the case of public lands management and conservation, that's at least not doing damage, right? Uh, it's it's hard to say. I mean, it it means they're not. Obviously, they're not being disposed of. Now, it, it should be noted that William Perry Penley, um, I'm just going to start calling him PP for short. Um, Dub PP. Yeah, he uh, <laughs> he cannot, by law, dispose of public lands. 
because uh, he has no authority to do so, do so. That has to go through Congress. You know, yeah. but it doesn't mean that he can't have influence on their management. Um, yeah. Again, he doesn't have a lot of time to do it, but he might, you know, since he's in a position of power for something that he has been an advocate of one way or another for for quite some time, you know, he may try to keep that job. Yeah. You know, that's a reasonable thing to assume. <laughs> so um, it's not good for... You know the the public at large. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that celebrate it because for, and, and there is reason for this. I, I will not dismiss this out of hand. That a lot of people in the Western states feel very disenfranchised by the federal government and the management of federal lands. Boy, you're not kidding. And that is something I'm absolutely sympathetic to. Yes. But it's not as easy as saying that the reasons why aren't as easy to say, well, they've just screwed us every time. You know, generally speaking, they have voted in people that have cut that land's budget to where it can't be effectively managed. And they've done it for 40 years now. It's been a long-term plan to kill it by not funding it. You know, this isn't a secret. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, you know, so, and, and it's just, it, it's just hilarious. And I, I put it to, you know, a lot of these people are egg people, you know, and I'll explain it to them. If I were to come in and tell you that I'm only going to allow you to have 60% of the funds that you need to properly manage your ranch, is that ranch going to run the way it's supposed to? <laughs> no. No, of course not. Anything, a household, a business. Anything, literally anything. So, I mean, whose fault is it truly? Yeah. You know, the government yeah. is a reflection of us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've argued that point tooth and nail. Mm-hmm. Well, the government does this. And who directs the government? We the people never forget that. That's who. Um, you know, so I just, it just, it becomes. Uh, and you, you can't hardly even have these conversations with people, you know, no. that we're so tribal with, you know, I've, we refuse to even look at other sides and it's, it gets so tribal, like nobody can learn anything new, you know, and it's, it's, you know, well, that's the battle we face every day. And that's no. where I find myself in a unique position here with hunting and fishing in general is like dipping a toe <laughs> into this uh, complex world. Again, looking at it with fresh eyes, I kind of took it for granted before, but now it's like pretty important to me to preserve the wild places that we have in our public land management system because, hey, guess what? It works in the North American model of conservation, which we've harped on and on about because, hey, guess what? It works. We've brought numerous game species back from the brink of extinction and all of that. Um, and, you know, as I get older and have a family, it's something that I want to share with generations down the line and all that all that stuff right so it's become more important but that's the question i keep asking myself is where's the balance right because as we learned hunting is conservation you know you put money towards spending time in the outdoors and doing outdoor activities whatever it may be that is conservation but where's the difference between conserving to the point of never even experiencing it and consuming to the point of 
ruining what makes it special for you, right? Mm -hmm. So, and we even see it. We even see it on our lake that we have a cabin on around here, or my in-laws do at least. I say we. They tell me to treat it like it's my own, but it's really theirs. Um, but I mean, just this year. <laughs> I haven't done as much fishing as I normally do because the lake's been a little weird this year. And uh, it's as high as anyone around there can remember. It's been a wet year. There's a lot of agriculture around it, and we're getting these big algal blooms out in the middle. And lots of uh, lots of weeds and stuff around. And, you know, we were having a conversation, where is this coming from? And me and the wife were talking about, well, you know, it's... There are several things that are all over the ground, all around this lake that make stuff grow. And it's fertilizers and all this stuff has been wet. And one of the neighbor's friends is an ex-DNR guy. And he's like, yeah, it's definitely all the runoff. And it's mostly agricultural, right? Because that's the powerful stuff that gets into the water table that's spread over the largest amount but of land. But it's not not the perfect lawns that are right up to the edge of the lake either. You know? Oh, like, yeah. I'm not... I've been to the lake, you know, I was there with you guys some yeah. time, you know, not long ago. And, uh, yeah, I'm definitely not, when you see it, you're definitely not blaming everything on egg there. No. When you're seeing people ones. that have ripped out shoreline to put in a nice sandy beach and a perfect, yeah. perfectly curated lawn without a single weed in it. Right. Uh, all the way to the water's edge. I mean. Then when it rains, that goes in the water. Everybody does yeah. that. You get algal blooms. Things get, you know, and things it's get just, goofy. <laughs> and it's down to the and, individual and, and, level. And everyone's right? confused. Like, why is this? I mean, this lake used to be so clean. We used to be able to swim in it. And, <laughs> yeah. You know, I still go swimming in this dock. lake. What happened? Right. You happened. Right. And I still you know? go swimming in this lake, and I still caught fish off the dock this year. Ours is not as bad. But the point stands, like, I mean, look at one of the most famous lakes in Minnesota is Lake Minnetonka, right? <laughs> you want to talk invasive species, we well, can talk invasive species. You know, you invasive want to talk, species on that lake are the people. <laughs> that's, that's not a joke. Um, I think even uh, another podcast who I actually don't listen to much anymore because uh, <laughs> I don't want to be Stephen Rodella on this podcast, but <laughs> they took him out to Minnetonka when they were in town. And, I mean, I would have picked a different spot to take those guys if it was me, to be honest. <laughs> but, I mean, and you can catch fish in that lake, but you can also catch uh, zebra mussel cuts on the bottom of your foot. And E. coli. I was going to be a little more crass about uh, the partiers, but I'll keep those comments to myself, I suppose. There's so, a bunch of people that were swimming in Minnetonka that caught E. coli this summer. Yeah. Yep. Uh, actually, there's a funny story. One of the breweries around there uh, went down to the lake because, you know, we have a ton of cra – there's a craft brewery explosion in Minnesota, and there has been for several years. They went down to Minnetonka and grabbed a bunch of aquatic milfoil and tossed it into their fermentation tanks. Or <laughs> When they hopped it, they threw it in with the hop, and, uh, like, they marketed it that way, and it was, you know – Minnesota beer, milfoil, whatever, you know, and apparently it was a hot ticket and they sold out like immediately and they made another batch and the DNR, cause everyone was like, Oh, ha ha ha. You know, all the 
folks around here. I thought that was pretty funny, I guess, or not all, but several. And uh, the DNR got wind of it, and it was really hot, and they made came and made them dump all of the tanks that they had of every bit of beer that that milfoil touched. Because you can't do that. It's an invasive species. <laughs> you're, I mean, you're monetizing, you're creating an economic incentive for an invasive species at that point. So, yeah, crazy. That's crazy. Um, I think that crosses the line between conservation and consumption, if you ask me. <laughs> that's way, way over. Yes. That's. <sighs> <sighs> yep, that's how I felt about it too. But it's just an example. <laughs> that's disgusting, honestly. It's just an example. Or you can go up into the mountains and find a pristine, clear lake. And lean up against a tree and have a break while you're having a hike and then never see it again. And neither will anyone else, right? Or you can never go well, out there and just leave it yeah, alone. Yeah, which, which isn't great either. <laughs> which isn't great either. Why are we keeping it then if that's the case? And there are arguments for keeping it and having nobody ever go out to wild places. No humans ever. There are arguments for that, but there's got to be a line somewhere, right? That's not palatable either. <laughs> no, no, you know, not at all. Yeah, seeing, I saw this last week and I, was, I had like, like a 2,000 word thing I wanted <laughs> to write to this person on a Facebook comment because she called wilderness area useless. And like, it Ooh. started out with, Ooh. she was probably in her mid 80s. Ooh, excuse and me. And it started out with, you old bat. And I was like, you know, let's just, <laughs> I'm not, this this isn't gonna lead anywhere good. No, it's so easy to do that too. What you gotta uh, do is talk, right? Yeah. Can't type. Gotta talk. Face to face. Anyways, what was this last? is depressing. I don't want to talk about. <laughs> well, well, well. No, I mean, I don't want to end on that note. Then, so there's. You're right. I mean, there's got to be that happy medium, right? There's got to be that place, and that's one of the things that I am. Uh, focusing on and trying to figure out is even in it's, it's down to the each individual person right like uh, if you have land I know a lot of landowners keep sanctuary areas on their land especially if they hunt on their land mm -hmm. that yeah we hunt but we don't hunt there you know they keep that own their own line personally right or uh, if you have a house on a lake maybe don't round up the weeds and Fertilize the lawn. Like, I mean, I have a personal crusade against perfect lawns. I don't like them at all. Like, we live in a forest or a prairie or wherever. Like, stop trying to make it a golf course. Um, mm -hmm. And when it rains, your grass is green. And when it doesn't, you don't have to mow it as much. And you can go fishing more often. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. <laughs> um, but you can take it down to a personal level, too, right? Or... Make sure that you do your research and hunt where you're supposed to hunt and buy your tag and get the walleye stamp on your fishing license for another however many few bucks to go towards, you know, the extra whatever. Get the family license mm -hmm. even if you're taking the wife one time. is more money towards conservation, you know, which you can't always just throw dollars at it, but be an advocate. Hold your friends accountable too, you know. Is that the limit? Stop shooting ducks when you're not sure that you can <laughs> identify them, and even the game warden can't, right? Like, right. 
There's no excuse not to be involved with something now. Right. If it matters. You know, to, if you care, I mean, you should be involved with something. Or even if you're not a, a hunter or a fisher or an angler. Uh, yeah. You know, you're a rock climber climbing Devil's Tower. Don't be a dickhead and leave a bunch of stuff out there. Mind your trail ethics. Leave no trace, right? So right. we can all continue to do it together. You're going to have an impact. But uh, I think the line between conservation and enjoyment should lean towards conservation always, whatever that means towards you, overcorrect towards conservation, because then you'll know that you're not stepping over the line and ruining it for other people. How about that? Right. Does that Probably make you feel let, better? Try to let somebody else experience the magic too. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Because that's really what we're doing, right? I'd say so. Teddy Roosevelt, John Muir, Aldo Leopold. Read some books too. <laughs> That'll help you. Read uh, my first summer in the Sierras in a Sand County almanac, and uh, setting decoys by moonlight by Adam Deshane. Now on Amazon Kindle. <laughs> and never enough October. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What was the last uh, wild game meal you had? Oh, dude. I made. So it's, I think I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, but it's called uh, venison rollinade, rollinade, something like that. Okay. So what I did was took uh, some backstrap or tendril or loin, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Sliced it pretty thin and then like pounded it out, so it was really yep. thin and flat. And then you stuff that with like ground meat. So, like, the recipe I had that I called for, um, like, half burger, half sausage. So you and pound I it out half. flat and then roll it? Do you make, like, a roll out of it? Yeah. And then you, okay. so you, yeah, you put that on there and then roll it up, right? Ooh. And like, so I didn't have any sausage. So I'm like, how can I kind of, you know, make it similar? So I just, like, put some fennel on there. Like, mm-hmm. I uh, channeled you guys, I guess. So <laughs> Just add more fennel. <laughs> yeah. You know, and you know, then you you roll that up, you know, and put the, the slice of bacon around it. Kind of like a porchetta. Like yeah, kind of. And then, okay. and then put a toothpick through it and hold it. Brown nice. it up. You know, put it in. Uh, and, uh, so I had everything laying out there. And this is where I really screwed up. When I had those steaks laying out. Yeah. And I went to go do something. And I come back and my shithead little puppy no. got counter and ate half my dinner. No. <laughs> yeah, so, but he's so, an athlete. So he's going to be a hell of a hunter. <laughs> oh, I was furious. Um, but anyway, going on. So you take and uh, you know roll those up, brown them, and then you put them in a Dutch oven, and then I make you go in there with like some stock. Red wines, vegetables, Ooh. you know, and then you like slow simmered that, right? Yeah. And then, so when they were done, I took them all out, you know, and like all these vegetables and stuff. I made, took some of that sauce that was there and like made a gravy out of it. And it's everything that I like in a meal. I served it with some really good bread and we had uh, gravy um, bread. noodles and stuff. It's fantastic. Several different meats. Yeah. And it just, it, yeah, it's everything <laughs> I love in a meal. Yes. One of my favorite my things. Said she did not care for the fennel. Uh-huh. My two-year-old said, "I don't like it." 
Perfect. Send it over, kid. girl said <laughs> something. He didn't like it either. All right, perfect. Put it in the and, fridge. It's um, all mine. You know, and I shouldn't let this bother me because they're three and six. You know, <laughs> I don't have to find palate. I spent all day in the kitchen for this. I spent a ton of time on it. And you know what? <laughs> yes. it, it becomes a really personal thing for it me. It does, because, seriously. Especially with Wild Game. Like, yes. I... You know, I am, you know, sometimes essentially there for that animal's last moments on Earth. Absolutely. You know, I have taken care of it from, you know, from beginning to end, the butchering, the prep, the, you right. know, making the recipe, the <laughs> cooking, serving it. And it's, it's, it's deeply meaningful. It's deeply, deeply meaningful. meaningful. It means a ton to me. And then to have my three-year-old like son it. eat it. <laughs> I'll take it then. I'll eat it all. Like, I could not have been more deflated. <laughs> and I, I, mean to like, laugh. I totally understand. I mean, it, I mean, it was venison burger. It was venison steak. I mean, it was just everything about it. I mean, just like I'd have it every day. Yeah. And it was achy. Oh, uh, well. You can't please so, everybody all the time. More for you. <laughs> it, was, it was brutal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's so good. It was yeah. so good. No. So, Sounds how delicious. about you? Uh, it was, you'd ate the hell out of it. I'm sure I would have. <laughs> the last wild game I actually had was up at the lake. I didn't make it myself. It was the neighbor, actually. And uh, he, we had a little potluck, a uh, little party with the neighbors. And he made pheasant poppers. So he had some pheasant breasts that he diced, like, you know, bite-sized dices. And mm-hmm. uh, let me try and remember. There's a little bit of fireball, a little bit of rum chata involved. So let me try and remember. How <laughs> made it. Uh, oh, it that like, neighbor. <laughs> yeah. It was like a little best fisherman on the lake, actually. It was like a little uh, Cuba pheasant that i think he put like a jalapeno ring and some cream cheese inside and then wrapped in bacon and hit with a toothpick and then uh heated them you know browned them up and then threw them in the crock pot with some barbecue sauce Mm -hmm. good stuff good stuff i'm stealing that that one this fall absolutely now so um it's probably an entirely another different conversation but i'm getting excited for this fall too it's kind of weird i'm (laughs) it's been a while for us we've kind of been on uh, a little bit of a summer retreat here and actually my fishing like i said has been less uh had a little less velocity than i would like but i'm hitting it this fall i need to make some phone calls cement some plans and uh i feel the momentum building it's it's kind of, it's starting it's starting to hit me like the, mm-hmm. the nights are getting cooler. Like, Ooh, August! I wore pants all day today. Like I'll be elk hunting less than a month from now. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I learned <laughs> some new I things. Enjoyed more. I learned some new things about uh, some opportunities available in the state here. Working those networks, did a couple other things that I didn't take advantage of last year that I'm gonna do this year. I think big things are coming. I want to hear that elk story, though, when you uh, don't run into a bear and uh, take home a monster this year. I don't think I'll – I mean, there's definitely 
You know, I shouldn't say that. That's yeah. just going to jinx. It's a story for there is bears time. in the area. They're all black bears, but there's definitely bears. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a story for after it happens. So, right. Uh, as always, do your research, educate yourself. Uh, think about what you're impacting when you're out there and where the line is between consuming and conserving, knowing that at the same, a lot of times they're the same activity does both. Uh, get involved. Try and understand what's, I mean, I understand it's a deep, dark world, but try and understand a little bit about the politics surrounding the land management and wildlife and game management in your state. Um, as always, it's hard to get accurate and straightforward information without opinion on that, but do what you can uh, to get involved in that. And Backcountry Hunters and Anglers is a good uh, group to get involved with on that. Actually, I was at a uh, festival that turned out to be a small town argument about where the center of a particular continent is, and I ran into a guy in a public landowner t-shirt. We were friends right away. Uh, <laughs> so... Get involved, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, uh, Ducks Unlimited, Pheasants Forever, North American Wild Turkey Federation, uh, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, Quality Deer Management Associations, state, local, federal levels. Get involved, do your research. Thanks to Craig Minowa and Cloud Cult for letting us use the song Running with the Wolves as the intro and outro to our program. Nothing beats... And gets you more research and information than sharpening your teeth, digging deep, and getting out there. cubicles and little flaming piles and we were running